This is episode 10 of the V Podcast. The V Podcast is brought to you by covalentleadership.com, where we help you become the best leader you can be through giving you the tools you need to develop your leadership skills. Thank you for listening and enjoy episode 10 of the V Podcast. Welcome to the V Podcast, where two men are trying to stamp out bad leadership in America, one podcast at a time. And if you're ready to become a 21st century leader, then the V Podcast is for you. On the V Podcast, we discuss the leadership problems in today's workplace and outline solutions to make you a better leader. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Now, here's your host. Welcome to the V Podcast. I'm Jeff. And I'm Dr. Joe Fleischman. And we are Covalent Leadership, here to stamp out bad leadership one podcast at a time. What say ye this morning, Joe? Well, as usual, Jeff, it's another, guess guess what, bright, sunny, and hot week down in Arizona. Is there a cloud in the sky anywhere? Can you see one? Not a cloud in the sky. It's really beautiful. You know, I remember when I lived in Vegas a few years ago, about the middle of summer, I would catch myself looking up at the sky and go, please, Lord, send one cloud through today so I can see something different. <laughs> yeah, I feel that way when it gets to be about 120. I'm like, please, Lord, can we get down to 100? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, like a cool day, 100, please. That'll do. Yeah. That's a, that's a, people are wearing sweaters on hundred degree days down there, aren't they? Just my dad. Well, funny story. Last night I'm talking to my daughter and she lives down in Vegas and, and, uh, I was asking her, I said, what are you doing? She said, Oh, I'm just got home from work and I'm sitting here on the couch. I got my electric blanket on. I said, electric blanket. What's the temperature down there today? She says, well, it's a chilly 90 and I'm just trying to warm up. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I feel the pain. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, talking about pain, today we're talking about an interesting topic, and that would be the topic of deception. Yeah, I like this topic a lot. It, it is an interesting one because it can go a lot of different ways, and it means, I'm just going to say it means a lot, but it doesn't mean a lot of different things. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward, pretty cut and dried. You know, as a general rule, deception is a, is a difficult thing for an organization to have. And um, uh, remind me later, Jeff, about Patton. Talk to me about Patton later on in this conversation. I know you're going to ask these tough questions, and I want to bring up Patton when we when we get there. Well, that's what you pay me for is to ask the tough questions. So, yeah, okay. Hey, uh, <laughs> before we get started, as always, we'd like to invite our listeners to it, go to our website, covalentleadership.com, and download our leadership autopsy form. Those autopsy forms are handy when you're evaluating your company, taking a look to see what type of malignancies your leadership may or may not have. And uh, as we go through the malignancies of leadership in this first season, we're almost done, Joe. We're what, I think this is about halfway through. You know, actually, Jeff, we only have two more podcasts Man. for this season. We are, we are smoking it. It's been great. So, well, let's get started. So as, our, as is our custom... We like to start off with a visit from our good friend, Merriam-Webster. So go ahead. Tell us what deception is. I will. Deception is the act of causing someone to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. Let me catch that again. It's the act of causing someone to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. Well, speaking of trying to get individuals to accept what is false 
uh, to, and, and believe it is true. Uh, reminds me of, of a story from Sanjay Kumar. He was a CEO, computer, uh, computer associate CEO, and um, he was ultimately found guilty of securities fraud. And of course, it was all in the books. He was able to cook his books in such a way that that people were willing to accept that the business was doing well, that the business had greater value in it than it actually did. And um, that was a deceptive practice. And, uh, you know, he was asked a simple question. Can your books be trusted? Because whoever was prosecuting this, prosecuting in this case uh, understood you cannot always accept uh, what a leader says at face value. A deceptive leader is really good at making you think you know, smoke and mirrors, making you think something is true when it's not. As it was, he, as I said, he was found guilty of securities fraud because once they started digging into the books, they found out that that everything he was doing was uh, deceptive in his accounting practices. So, hey, it, it caught up with him. I think that's funny. We're investigating you for securities fraud, <clears throat> and they have to ask the question, can your books be trusted? Well, you right. wouldn't be here if my books could be trusted. <laughs> you know, Jeff, it's interesting. I have a, a my wife has an uncle that lives in Chicago who's a forensics auditor. And he has some of the most interesting stories you have ever heard. Uh, basically, when a big company goes down, I mean a big company, he'll get a call from a judge, whether it's in Chicago or New York or or uh, San Francisco, and he'll say, we want you to come in here and we want you to investigate what's going on here. And he, he runs a big business. He's got about 100 accountants who work for him. And he says, Joe, sometimes in order to discern what they're actually doing, because they're very deceptive in how they move their monies around, it could take up to a year just to follow the money to figure out what's going on. And I thought, man, uh, it's amazing. And when he goes to trial and he explains what they did, it's, it's a house of cards. There's no question about that. It's a house of cards when you're a deceptive leader. But sooner or later, it, it, the practice catches up to you. It, it is a malignancy. It does kill an organization. But um, it'd be nice if we could look at leaders today and, and tell in advance, you know, hey, this, we see some problems coming. When we're talking about deception, it, it's interesting because I have uh, an uncle on my wife's side who's a forensics auditor, and he has some of the, the most fascinating stories to tell about uh, the deception that CEOs are running sometimes when they're trying to cook the books. And uh, whether he works for New York or Chicago or San Francisco, when these major companies are filing for bankruptcy or going through some issue, major issue, uh, the judges will order my uncle to come in and look at the books. And he has a very large accounting firm. He's probably got 100 people who work for him who will do nothing but investigative work on, on what they're trying to do. And it might take them six months to a year sometimes to figure out just what's going on. Because deceptive people are really, really good at hiding the facts and trying to get you to believe something else. And uh, he's just been really fortunate because he's able to sort that out and kind of see through it. And he always says, you know, uh, deceptive leaders, they always have a, they always have a tell. There's, they always have a sign. You just have to know what you're looking for. Well, that, uh, that reminds me of a show that I used to watch <clears throat> called Lie to Me, where the guy was a 
uh, he studied micro expressions and things and he, and he basically would catch people lying. And he, so he was a, a detective that would do that. And I always loved watching him because afterwards he would say, you know, when they, when they caught the bad guy or whatever, he'd say, well, he did this and that indicated that, or he looked like this and that indicated that. So there are always ways you, you could spot deception through body language and stuff. So your question makes me ask or wonder, are there ways that you can spot deceptive leaders that are, are telltale signs that help you spot deception before maybe before it goes too far or too deep? Or is there anything like that out there, Joe? Well, that's a good question. And, and there are signs out there. In fact, um, you're not going to believe that, this is hard to believe, but there's a, a, a magazine out there called Fraud Magazine, and it actually has great information in it. Right. Fraud magazine. In February 2012, they had a, a really nice article out there called The Ten Tell Tale Signs of Deception. Right. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to share those with your listeners because I think many of them will be able to uh, empathize with some of these signs. They've probably seen them in practice. All right, let's let's go for them. What's number one? One, lack of self-reference. So instead of, you know, a lot of people, when you're involved in a story, um, for instance, Jeff, when, when you've done something and you're excited about it, you, um, you don't mind sharing it. You know, to, to give me a time that you did something, say, coaching, and you had a successful uh, game or something with your team. Describe that event. Well, I had, I had taken the boys, and we'd worked really hard on a couple of set plays during this one practice week, and, and I had taught them a new out-of-bounds play, and we happened to be in the game. And during this one critical moment, we called that new out-of-bounds play, and sure enough, it worked just like we had worked on it. So that was a pretty cool moment for us. See, Jeff, and you, and, and you did it um, automatically. You started with the words I, I and we. I and we, I did this, we did that. So what you're doing when you're telling a story, because you were in the story, it's so easy to naturally say, I did X. Now, a deceptive leader won't do that. They'll simply say, well, you know, um, an event occurred. This, instead of saying, I left the safe unlocked, they'll say something like, the safe was unlocked. You know? Instead of saying, um, I ordered a shipment, they'll say things like, well, a shipment was ordered. But that personal, I was there, is gone. So when they're not in their own story, there's probably a problem with that story. Well, for the record, my story was true. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, be, I believe you. Well, I've got, I got nine more ways to figure out whether that's true or not. All right, we're going to see if you can catch me. So uh, the next one is, I thought this was interesting when you told me about this the other day, verb tense. What do you mean by verb tense? Well, um, we're looking at when that, when that story occurred. Now, if we're telling a story about what we did, that's a historical perspective. So that's done in the past tense. But it's easy for me to tell a story about when I was a kid and I went fishing or when I was uh, in college and I took a test or whatever it was, because I'm replaying history. And I'm, and it, you know, those stories usually start out, you know, I remember it was this time when, and then you just naturally run that film in your mind. But if you're making the story up for the first time and you haven't actually lived it, then you have a tendency to tell that verb tense in the present as though it's happening right now because it literally is. You're making it up on the spot. You know what? What we did is we did X. We're going to. We're doing this. 
It's, it's, there's none of this reflection, historical reflection. So if the story sounds like it's taking place as it's being said, it probably is. Hmm. Okay. Got it. Got it. So what's number three then? Oh, that's a good one. It's answering a question with a question, right? Hey, did you, st- give you an example, Jeff. Um, did you steal money from your business? Why would I steal money from my business, Joe? Right. See, that's exactly it. And and by giving that answer, it's a logical step that you're asking your listener to say, well, of course he didn't steal money. He just, he just said he didn't steal the money. But did you? I did not say that. Yeah. So when you ask a question, when you answer a question with a question. Now, the reason deceptive leaders do that is because they, they don't want to be held accountable to, to somebody who says, I guarantee you this happened. They don't want to have that. They don't want to ever have somebody come back and say, you said, bam, because that just nails them down. Right. And then they can say, I never said that. Uh, Exactly. So that's a part of it. That's not what I said. Oh, or, oh, you misunderstood me. Right. Right. Now, let me, let me, let me elaborate on that. Let me explain that. But no specifics and questions with questions are the best way to get that done. That, that's funny because even liars don't like to lie. <laughs> they don't. Um, they really don't. And I think that's important. Uh, even liars don't like like to know that they're a liar. Equivocation. <laughs> and equivocation is nothing more than a vague statement, right? Just a vague statement. And the reason um, deceptive people like equivocation is because they want you to fill in the blanks. And they want to give themselves lots of running room later on. So if I say, Jeff, um, did you go out for dinner on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock? Uh, yeah, we went out for dinner. Who, Who's we? Uh, my family. Who, who, who in your family? Just all of us. We all just went out together and had a good time. See, and you're answering the question. and mm-hmm. um, but But what I really want to know is who in your family – where did you go to eat? You know, what did you do? And, and, a, and a, um, a deceptive leader who excels in equivocation gives himself so much latitude for later on down the road to say, no, I didn't say that. You, you know, I just didn't say that. So it's always hard to know what they really mean because they're intentionally trying to make sure you don't understand what they mean. Well, and the other part of that question is you asked me for a specific date and time. And I just said, yeah, we went to dinner. I didn't confirm the date or the time. Right. Great. Thank you for pointing that out. Well, the fifth thing they do is they they take oaths, right? Because if I take an oath, that oath gives me a greater ethos, as we would say in rhetorical criticism. It strengthens my case. So if you don't believe me, I swear on a stack of Bibles that what I'm telling you is the absolute God-awful God's truth, right? Now, what have I just done? I like that Freudian slip. Yeah. It's a god-awful truth. <laughs> god-awful truth. So when people stand up and say, I swear on my mother's grave, you know, wait a minute. Why, why do you need to do that? There's an old saying right. that, I, I, that I, I love and I stick with. Say yes when you mean yes. Say no when you need, mean no and leave everything else aside. And it always works. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, the sixth characteristic of a deceptive leader is they, they have a tendency to use euphemisms, right? And what do I mean by that? 
it's just, uh, it's, it's more vagary, isn't it's, it? It's more vagarism. Absolutely. So, Jeff, if I were to say, did you steal his wallet? His wallet was stolen. Are you sure it's not just missing? He didn't misplace it? Did you take it? Why would I take it? I, I, he borrowed it to me for a little bit so I could get something for him. See what I mean? And so it's those words. It's the, it's the euphemisms. It's, it's, it's not stolen. It's just missing. You know? mm-hmm. It's not lost. I just can't find it. Right? And, and that way, uh, when the lawyer comes down to you and you're on trial, um, you have plenty of running room to work with. I didn't say I stole it. You know? it, right. it it's just missing. I don't know. How would I know where it went? And again, that's asking a question, answering a question with a question. So you can see a a deceptive leader usually uses several of these rhetorical devices in their ongoing communication, alluding to action. I love that one. That Hmm. that's a case where um, if you ask them a question, did you take the garbage out? That's my job, isn't it? To take the garbage out? Did you walk the dog? Isn't that what I'm supposed to do every day is walk the dog? Jeff, did you back up all the files on Friday night? I always back up the files, Joe. You know that. Right. But the funny part is you didn't answer my question at all. No. You just alluded to actions. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? Yeah, but what I want to know is did you do it? (laughs) Right. And that's not what you, and you never answered that question, but you, you gave me the perception of something to be true when it wasn't. So I assume you walked the dog. Now I assume you took the garbage out. Now I assume you took the, uh, uh, back the files up because you know, you're supposed to, right? Uh, lack of details. And I like this one. Okay. Think back, think back for a moment when you did something that you're really proud of. All right. Okay. Share that moment with us. Well, two years ago, I went fishing with my father. We went steelhead fishing, and it was beautiful down in the canyon. The The morning light was coming up, and you could see it glistening off the water, and the water was nice and smooth. And I hooked this giant steelhead, and man, it took me a half hour to get that thing landed. Was that up at Salmon? Yeah, that was up at Salmon. We were up in Chalice. Oh, my goodness. That's gorgeous up there. Yes. But you see, Jeff, what you are able to do is you are able to draw on rich contextual detail. And and suddenly we could like, for those of us who have been in Idaho, we could see ourselves there. It was beautiful. But what happens when a deceptive leader hasn't done that and they're lying to you, they don't, they can't give you rich detail like that. Their answers are short. They're crisp. Yes. No. We did that. We ran, we did, we called, we, any, any, do you care to elaborate on that? And they can't elaborate because they can't make it up that quickly. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. So if if your people are telling you stories that are not fun to listen to, chances are they're not old stories. Okay. (laughs) So there's also a thing called a narrative balance. And this is the rhetorical device. Um, But as you know, I I come from a, a communication background All stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, we call that on a technical side, a prologue, a critical event, and an aftermath. But we're going to stick with the typical nomenclature, beginning, middle, and an end. 
And the beginning of a story is about 40% of it. And the middle of a story is about 40% of it. And an end of a story is about 20% of the conversation. So when you're diagramming a conversation, if you spend no time at the end, what does that mean? Making it up. You're making it up, right? So that's kind of what we look at. There's a beginning and middle and an end to all stories. And if your stories don't have all three of those, you need to question that story. And if that if that story doesn't follow that module, that model 40-40-20, look, look a little closer. That's all we're telling you. Hmm. Interesting. And then mean length of utterance. That kind of goes with that, MLU. It kind of follows that narrative balance. As a general rule, people speak eh, 10 to 15 words a sentence. Some of us speak a little more. But on average, 10 to 15 words a sentence. So when you're leaders are giving you really brief answers, one to two words. Be leery, right? So, hey, those are the 10 signs that you're probably working with a deceptive leader. And I'm willing to bet you that many of us have seen those in our leadership at some point in time or another. Okay. That was really cool, Joe, those, those things there. Now, hey, that just reminds me. You asked me to remind you about General Patton. You got you got a patent patentism here for us. I do a patentism. I like it. Hey, for those of you who are, I'm a history buff, World War II, and remember, just before D-Day, they had patent in France, in in London, and they created these false divisions. They had this whole army based around Patton, and they wanted to give the Germans the impression that Patton would be leading the invasion. And they actually made these um, fake tanks out of wood and paper and paper mache. And they had these, these had these tank columns and whole armies. And the Germans truly believed that Patton would be leading the invasion. And they believed they knew where he would be landing. And, and um, Eisenhower went out of his way to practice the fine art of deception in World War II, and it worked. Now, I want to share that with you because people are going to say, wait a minute, if Eisenhower used deception and it worked for World War II, then deception can be a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then people will say that. And, and my answer is, it's a fine line. So I wanted to talk about that. The effect of deception on an organization can destroy an organization. And here's the difference. Eisenhower was never trying to deceive the people he worked with. He was never trying to deceive his own people. All of his staff, all of his officers understood this was a strategy and they were all involved in it. He was totally transparent and honest with his own people. He was only trying to deceive the Germans. And it was a strategy. So <clears throat> that's what people don't understand. I think many of our leaders say, you know what? It's okay to deceive people sometimes. And it's not. It's, it's not okay to deceive your own people. Because when you do that, it has some real negative effects on the organization. So that's the difference. When you use deception, and, and like, like Eisenhower did in World War II, the key is making sure your organization doesn't lose faith in you and, and that they're a part of it. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting because I, I agree that there are times when deception is a useful 
tactic or strategy, but obviously never within your organization to your employees or the people on your team. And that's the critical point, Jeff. That's what many leaders forget. They get in the habit of deceiving and then they start to deceive the wrong people. Hmm. All right. So we've looked from the employee standpoint upwards at leadership. What about downwards? What if we look from the leader's perspective down to the employees? Is there any way that leaders can spot deception in their employees? Absolutely. Uh, James Kerr uh, in in, uh, the news, in the magazine Inc.com, he wrote a really nice article on this. It was called uh, The Trickle-Down Effect of Deceptive Leadership. Pretty straightforward, says it all. And, you know, he identified essentially five components that deceptive leadership, um, how, how five components of deceptive leadership negatively impact the people of an organization. And it starts with when the leader fosters a culture of deception, internal deception, the focus of the organization becomes internal. All of their focus is on the inside. Why, why would that be? Because they're running, they're running for their, to protect their own butts. CYA. Right. You know, it's a, it's just the opposite of a battle buddy. If you know that your boss has your back and if you know that all your support personnel in your organization have your back, then you can focus your full attention on growing the business, on, on, um, going out for sales or running the, the webinars or, or running your, your, um, departments. You can focus your total attention on growing the business. But if you can't trust your leader, then you have to worry more about what's coming, right? What's sneaking up behind me that I don't know? And then you have a divided attention. And that's not good for an organization. So the second thing that that happens is uh, leaders who practice deception, their team members start uh, stop doing their best. They stop doing their best because they're no longer able to totally focus on the job. They're too busy looking over their shoulder. That's the key. So they're not doing their best. And the third thing that happens is in a a deceptive organization where that's the the dominant culture, the employees start to play games. They start to play games. They start saying, well, what do I have to do to position myself in this organization so that no matter what happens, I'll be okay. What are happening with the powers today? And how do I align myself with the new power? So it's a lot of internal drama, a lot of internal power structures. You ever seen that in, in the workplace before, Jeff? You know, that's that's so rampant in every workplace that it's just, it's just painfully obvious to everybody when they see that. And it's that's one of the things about the workplace that I just really can't stand is that gamesmanship, the the politics of the workplace. Right. And then what happens, the natural progression to the fourth thing that happens is those team members, they stop sharing. Not not only do they stop sharing, they stop working together. They stop collaboration. They stop any form of transparency because they don't know who they can trust. Right. And, and, and all they do know is if they share too much, they're worried about the that that sharing, getting to the wrong person, because they know that sooner or later that they're going to come, that's going to haunt them. So they stop sharing, they stop working. And then the final end product is that 
the organization as a whole, the people lose their respect and faith in their leadership. And when that happens, you're done. Yep. You're, you're just finished. You, you just can't fix that. You don't recover from that. Why do you think they, they lose faith and trust in their leadership because of the, those first three or four things that are happening inside? Because they understand that the leaders don't care about them. You know, and, and leadership, people want to know they matter. People want to know that they're important to the organization and that, that they matter. And when you start playing games with people, essentially what you are telling them is, I don't respect you enough to care. And if nobody cares, then why should I? That's right. And then, so then you spiral out of control. So when you introduce that malignancy of deception into your organization, I want you to know the long-term impacts are deadly. But what, what makes it harder for leaders to change their habits is a really messed up leader, a really dysfunctional leader loves when their organization isn't working well. Because it, it just is a, a reinforcement to them that they need to be there every day calling every shot, micromanaging everything because their people can't do it without them. What, what they don't understand is the reason their people can't do it without them is because they've been so messed up by their leadership. Yes. But that, that's the hard part. So when you see a leader that says, I have to be there every day or these people don't know what to do, what you're looking at is a leader who is clueless. Yep. Yeah. And it goes back, that, that flies against everything we've <clears throat> been talking about, you know, assembling the right team, empowering them, doing all that stuff. If you're deceptive, then you're not empowering them and you're not assembling that right team because you're just, you're cutting the legs out from underneath them with your deception and making everybody rely on you. So, yep, that's a good right. point. So for those of you who are out there are thinking, well, if that's what most leaders do, and they do, those under, under the law of central tendency, about 98% of our leaders function in that way or to some degree, we're asking you to think a little different and get out of that box and adopt the covalent leadership qualities that are designed to attract, retain, uh, and retain really qualified people. And those leadership qualities start with transparency. You know, covalent leaders, really good leaders, are transparent in everything they do. And Jeff, I know you've got experience in transparency. You have transparency when you're working with as a coach. Mm -hmm. Why do you practice that? Because you want your intentions to be clear so that the people have confidence, number one, in what you're doing, and number two, so they'll execute it correctly because they understand the principles and concepts behind what you want them to do. Right. And, you know, I think I think about World War Two, you know, on Guadalcanal, the Japanese <clears throat> and the Marines slugged it out for a lot, a lot of time there. But what happened is the Japanese would continue to attack the same section at the same way, wave after wave after wave, and they would never change. And the reason they couldn't change is because they were given an order. And instead of in, and, and they were so worried about violating that order that they they could never they could never fluctuate because they never really knew what their leader wanted they were too afraid so they just had to do to the letter so when you're transparent with an organization and they understand what you're trying to get to 
then you free them up to say, take whatever path you need to take as long as we cross, cross that finish line. That's what matters. I'm not going to tell you what steps to take. I'm just going to tell you where we need to be. Transparency makes that happen. And that opens up your, your organization for a lot of fun and exciting things. So the second thing you have to be as a covalent leader is honest. Tell people the truth, right? You hired them. You know them. If you can't be truthful with your own people, who can you be truthful with? So honesty and integrity is a cornerstone of leadership. If you don't believe what your leaders say, you'll never risk everything. True. Consistency. I love consistency. It means it means every day being predictable, telling us what's going to happen, and then being good to your word. And I know there are a lot of leaders out there that are not consistent in what they do and how they act and and uh, and what they say. That consistency is so key. You know, and consistency not only in your word, but in how you treat people, making sure that you treat everyone the same. And, you know, let's face it, everybody does have favorites within the organization. That's just human nature. But if you can treat everyone the same and be consistent, that goes a long way to building your trust and credibility and helping you to overcome any perceptions of deception within the organization. And that's the key. That leads to integrity. People can never question your integrity. And I'll tell you why it's so important as a leader. When you bring a diverse team together, they're going to have as many people are, who are at the table, you're going to have that many perspectives and opinions about a given problem. But what happens is when you make a call and you finally make a decision, the people around that table, if you have integrity, they will look at you and go, you know what? I don't agree with the call, but I trust the person and I'm willing to go with it. And that, that affords them the luxury of relaxing because they know, they know that you're always making the best decision you can for them and for the organization because you never are questioned on your integrity. And, 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 and people like that. People want that allows them to be able to relax and say, I don't have to agree with him all the time, but I know he's always looking out for my best interest. Yep. Integrity. Yep. That's and a, that that's leads a huge us cornerstone. Yep. That, and, and, and that that allows for healthy disagreement within an organization. And that's what you're always trying to get. When you have integrity, you can have open and honest dialogue. That's what people want. That's what forms a strong organization. And Jeff, the last one is what I know you, you think this is the most important quality, um, courage. I, I believe courage is the, the root of all of those because without courage, you're not going to be transparent. You're not going to be honest. You certainly won't be consistent. And I, I think integrity takes courage. So, yep, I, I think courage should be number one. Well, you know, uh, Vince Lombardi, as uh, owner of the Green Bay Packers, I always study Vince Lombardi. He had a great saying. He said, exhaustion makes cowards of us all. And I know he was he was he made that reference as he was looking at his football team, but it applies to just about everything we do in life. And leadership is a big job. Leadership is an enormous job and it requires every ounce of effort a leader has to spend forming and developing their team. And what happens is sometimes leaders will say, "You know what? I got three out of the five qualities, that's good enough. 
I, I do four out of the five qualities that, that that's good enough. And it's not, you know, leadership is hard, but it, it's an all or nothing thing. It's like running the marathon, you either run 26.2 miles or you haven't run it. You know, your comment about, or your quote from Lombardi about exhaustion makes cowards of us all. That's really applicable in, in, a, in a variety of areas of your life because <clears throat> what I see in, in athletics a lot is you'll take somebody that's young and they'll, they'll start learning to do a certain skill a certain way. And then you, they get a little older and you get some good coaching in there and you try to fix that bad habit as they go through and they're performing or whatever. You see them as they get tired they revert back to that original bad habit because that's easy for them. That's kind of what they know. That's what they were learning when they were first forming that skill. And that's the same with leadership. You know, as we try to become covalent leaders, you're right. Leadership is an all day, every day thing. And it is tiresome. And so it's easy as you're, when you're a leader to get to the end of the day and you're tired and somebody comes in with a problem and you don't handle it appropriately. You fall back to the, what you were taught when you were learning how to be a leader and not that it make not that you're a coward, but it's just easier to do that because that's how you were quote unquote brought up. Right. And so right. you fall back on habits. You're, you just get exhausted. Yeah. But, but what I can tell you is that becoming one of the 2% to the right of the curb will take everything you have, everything you have and more, but it's worth it. It is worth it's it. It's worth it. It is. So for those, for those individuals who want to be covalent leaders, you know, look at what you're giving up. Your typical leader is a is one of those individuals that that employs multiple malignant behaviors. Unfortunately, far too many of them are micromanagers, and um, they're not really fun people to be a part of, right? And that's why many organizations have this excessive employee turnover problem because leadership in America today is horribly broken and and we know it and we're looking they're looking for the right organization they're looking for the right leader imagine being a covalent leader where you get to spend your time not micromanaging a person not screaming at them not yelling at them not threatening them but creating an environment a culture that's transparent and honest and consistent and and one where your people love what they do and they want to be a, a part of that organization, if you focus your efforts on being a covalent leader, they will line up, individuals will line up at your door to be a part of that organization. So what do you want? What do you want? Do you want to, do you want to live in a kind of world that's hard and, and not fun at all? Or do you want to live in a dynamic, robust organization that's just in? A, a, a ball to work at. That's that's the question you get to decide for yourself. We are looking forward to working for those 2% who want to be that covalent leader because we know how to do that. Well, I choose fun, so I'm, I'm all about option two. <laughs> I do too, because work can be fun. It can be You know, fun. if it's not, you're doing something wrong. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, that's a great spot to wrap us up. And as we prepare for next week, Next week, we'll be talking about the malignancy of fear. And that's a scary topic, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. But I'm ready for it. Okay, good. Well, do you have any final thoughts for us as we get ready to sign off today? Well, for all you covalent leaders out there, remember, leadership is first and foremost highly personal. Never apologize for having the courage and wisdom to make it so.
Make it so. And before you make it so, make sure you visit our website, covalentleadership.com, download the leadership autopsy form, and see where your organization stacks up and see what areas that you need shoring up on and let us know where we can help you with that. So until next time, I'm Jeff. I'm Joe. And we are Covalent Leadership, and this has been the V Podcast. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. 